Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. A haunting gaze that transcends time. Everyone who sees this woman's face can't forget her. A venomous plot of murder for hire. He puts his wife's foot into the box with the rattlesnakes. And the perilous search for a legendary adventurer. They basically went in there and didn't come out. Inside the walls of great institutions lie extraordinary relics, tales of intrigue and wonder, and secrets waiting to be revealed. These are the mysteries at the museum. Arlington, Massachusetts. This leafy Boston suburb is the birthplace of Samuel Wilson, who some say was the inspiration for the well-known American character Uncle Sam. It is also the home of a rather unusual collection of famous faces, the International Life Cast Museum. Here, visitors can view the death masks of such icons as Abraham Lincoln, Henry VIII, and Sir Isaac Newton. But one intriguing cast represents a far less familiar figure. This particular artifact depicts a very beautiful female face. And in a way, her expression reminds one of the Mona Lisa. According to museum board member Pell Osborne, this beguiling smile conceals an amazing tale of an unlikely celebrity with an astonishing afterlife. The person behind this mask has had a rare gift. She's lived twice. Who is this woman? And how did she help save thousands of lives after her death? Paris, France, the 1880s. It's a beautiful day in the city as residents stroll the banks of the River Seine. But some are soon greeted by a terrible sight. There floating in the river is the body of what appears to be a young woman. Authorities retrieve the lifeless form from the water. 
In an effort to identify her, the coroner's office enlists the public's help. They display her body behind a glass partition in a part of the morgue known as the corpses gallery. A corpses gallery was almost like a museum exhibit where people could come up fairly closely to try to identify missing loved ones. But no one seems to recognize her. As the days pass, Parisians become transfixed by the sublime expression on her pallid face. She has such an extraordinary look of deep peace in death. Everyone who sees this particular woman's face can't forget her. In fact, the morgue pathologist is so moved by the unknown woman of the Seine that he makes a death mask to preserve her serene features for posterity. The tradition of death masks at this time was usually reserved to take a cast of the face of the very rich and famous. To take a death cast of a poor woman whose name and origin were totally unknown was quite unusual. And yet, as soon as the pathologist unveils her plaster likeness, a copy of which is on display at the International Life Cast Museum, it becomes an instant sensation. The coroner makes copies of the death mask. Other people make copies of the death mask. And pretty soon, the story is so widely disseminated that poets write about her. People compose music about her. She becomes an extraordinary celebrity. Her face, her likeness, is just everywhere. Over time, her image becomes a relic of the distant past, and the story of the unknown woman of the Seine fades into memory. But little can anyone imagine, this tragic and beautiful figure will gain a second win, transforming millions of lives around the world. Norway, 1954. Asmund Leerdal is a successful toy maker who enjoys a quiet life with his wife and children. But one day, while on vacation, his world is turned upside down when he discovers his unconscious young son floating in the sea. Mr. Laerdal retrieves the body and slaps it and shakes it, does everything he possibly can to revive this little fellow. Miraculously, the child sputters back to life. It's a happy ending, but the story doesn't stop there. Soon after this incident, Laerdal is contacted by a doctor who heard about the miraculous recovery of this child on the beach. The man's name is Dr. Peter Safer. He tells the toy maker he's developing a method of reviving patients suffering from cardiac arrest. It's remarkably similar to the one Leyerdahl used on his son. The system involves pumping on a patient's chest and breathing into their mouth to restore oxygenated blood to the brain and heart. But the doctor explains that his method of teaching this new technique leaves a lot to be desired. The method that Dr. Safer is using actually involves using volunteers who are sedated so that people can beat on their chests and breathe down their windpipes. And that's when Laerdal realizes he can use his toy-making talents to help. Laerdal is thinking, how about if I make an actual dummy that people can work on? They can compress the chest. We could even have a face that they can breathe into to get a sense of how the whole procedure works. But Laerdal struggles to design a plastic dummy that's not intimidating. I thought, 
there ought to be a way to get a face that's appealing enough that people won't think twice about putting their mouths to the fake lips of the doll's face. One day, his eyes fall upon a decorative item which belonged to his grandmother, the death mask of the unknown woman of the Sen. And he thinks, wow, that's an attractive face, non-threatening. Perhaps I could use that. Laerdal models his prototype on the serene countenance of this mysterious woman. And when the first dummy is put into service in 1960, it is well received. Volunteers find it very easy to work with, and it's a great success. Soon, Laerdal's model is used around the world to teach this revolutionary technique. To date, over 400 million people have been trained in CPR using the face of the unknown woman of the Seine. And today, at the International Lifecast Museum in Arlington, Massachusetts, this transcendent figure stands as a haunting reminder of a woman whose name will never be known, but whose influence is beyond question. With over 300 days of sunshine per year and a steady stream of majestic waves, the city of San Clemente is known as one of the epicenters of California surfing. So it's only fitting that it's home to an institution devoted to the sport's legacy, the Surfing Heritage Museum and Culture Center. The collection includes boards that once belonged to Hawaiian legends and modern-day champions. But there's one object here that's connected to a less celebrated surfer. The board is 10 feet long. It's wider than normal. And it was made in Florida in about 1963. According to museum founder Dick Metz, this board was once ridden by a world-class surfer who gained infamy for plotting one of history's most notorious capers. This was a tale of athletic prowess, destruction, and greed. To whom did this surfboard belong? And how did he pull off a dazzling feat that shocked the nation? October 30th, 1964, New York City. The staff of the American Museum of Natural History readies the building for a steady stream of visitors. But when an employee unlocks the Hall of Gems and Minerals on the museum's fourth floor, he is stunned. There was shattered glass everywhere. Several of the glass cases had been broken into. 24 precious stones are missing, including the world's biggest sapphire, the Star of India. It was a heist of epic proportions. Bookkeepers valued the gems that had been stolen at around $400,000, roughly $2 million in today's value. When authorities arrive to investigate, they immediately notice something odd. There was a, a window open in the gallery but the window is located on the fourth floor and is a staggering 125 feet above street level. The police had to wonder whether the perpetrators were among a short list of criminal masterminds. Hours later, police receive a promising tip. An informant said that he'd been at a party where the hosts were spending money like water and were bragging about having pulled off a major job. Investigators immediately head to the location of the party, a room at the Cambridge House Hotel, just blocks from the museum. And there they find a man named Roger Clark, who says he's visiting from Florida. He immediately told the police that he wasn't involved in the crime. 
but a thorough inspection of the premises yields two very incriminating items. A floor plan of the Museum of Natural History and a book on precious stones. Under questioning, Clark gives up two surprising names, a Miami Beach diver named Alan Kuhn and a championship surfer known as Jack Murph the Surf Murphy. The police were a little mystified because to jump from surfing and having a good time into the biggest heist in the country was really a stretch. But at that stage, they had no other leads. Police take Clark into custody. And on November 1st, Kuhn and Murphy are arrested in Miami. The men are extradited back to New York. But Murphy, Kuhn, and Clark profess their innocence. The suspects claim we just came up to have a party in New York. We're just uh, surfers down in Miami. We don't know anything about it. But the police are convinced they have their men and charge the suspects with grand larceny. However, the case against the men is questionable. They had none of the jewels and they had no witnesses. And without compelling evidence, the judge sets a low bail allowing Murphy, Kuhn, and Clark to post bond and leave New York immediately. They went right back to Florida. Police can only watch with frustration as Murph the Surf settles back into beach life, hitting the waves using this longboard, now on display at the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center. For the police, it seems the chance of recovering the precious stones is slipping through their grasp. So will they bring down the men behind this high-flying jewel heist? 
Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. It's 1964, New York City, when 24 rare gems are stolen from the American Museum of Natural History. Police apprehend three men they believe are responsible, but with no evidence linking these men to the crime. The trio walks. So will the authorities be able to lock these men up and recover the priceless gems? Just when hope of convicting the men seems lost, authorities in New York receive an unexpected call. They'd gotten a tip from this victim on a jewelry theft that occurred just basically a year before. The woman explains that she's followed the coverage of the museum heist and thinks that Murphy, Kuhn, and Clark look eerily familiar. She was pretty sure that these suspects had robbed her. On January 5th, 1965, Murphy, Kuhn, and Clark returned to New York for a scheduled court hearing. But they have no idea that police have a surprise in store. They put them in a lineup and got positive identification from their witness. The three men are arrested in connection with this theft. And this time, they're held on $100,000 bail. The cops told them that they had the evidence to convict them on this other robbery. And if they didn't cooperate on the museum robbery, things would only get worse for them. Under the threat of long prison sentences, the trio cuts a deal. Kuhn, Clark, and Murphy admit their role in the museum theft. As part of the bargain... Alan Kuhn directs authorities to a locker at a Miami bus station. There, they retrieve two suede pouches containing nine gems, including the Star of India Sapphire. While a prized ruby is eventually tracked down months later, the 14 other stones are never found. But the question remains, how did these beach bums pull off one of history's most jaw-dropping heists? Investigators discover that on the night of October 29th, Kuhn and Murphy scaled the museum's fence. They ran up a fire escape and tied a rope to a pillar. Using strength and agility honed from years of surfing, Murphy hoisted himself up the rope until he was just feet from the fourth floor window. Then he made a daring entrance. Clinging to the rope, Murphy swung across to the window, which was open just a few inches. He was able to lower the window with his foot. As Murphy and his well-prepared team knew, the display cases were not connected to the museum's antiquated alarm system. On April 6th, the bandits are sentenced to three years in prison. And today, at the Surfing Heritage and Culture Center, this longboard serves as a reminder of a man whose prowess in the waves helped him execute one of the 20th century's greatest heists. Seated to the United States by the Republic of Mexico in 1848, San Diego is the second largest city in California. In the heart of this enchanting metropolis is the oldest scientific institution in the region, the San Diego Natural History Museum. Its collection features a vast array of animal artifacts, including the skeleton of a prehistoric mastodon, a collection of primordial mollusks, and a model of an extinct species of sea cow. But apart from these imposing remains of ancient fauna, 
is a specimen of modern flora. This looks like a very ordinary plant. It's about eight inches long. It has long green stems and pretty yellow flowers. According to historian Baron Lerner, this faded flower holds miraculous powers that once gave hope to two desperate parents. The story behind this plant is one of courage and heroism. What is this mysterious species, and how did it offer hope during a family's darkest hour? 1983, Chevy Chase, Maryland. Augusta Odone and his wife Michaela have recently moved to this leafy suburb. Their young son Lorenzo has just started kindergarten. Lorenzo was a very precocious child, and he was the apple of his parents' eyes. One day, Lorenzo is riding his bicycle when suddenly he takes a tumble. Augusto thinks little of the incident, but as he walks his son home, it becomes clear that something is wrong. Lorenzo seemed to be losing his balance. Augusto had to help him walk. Soon, the typically bright and articulate child begins to slur his speech. He was behaving in these very strange ways. Augusto and Michaela were very concerned. Desperate for answers, the Odones take Lorenzo to a neurologist for evaluation. They got the diagnosis, which was adrenoleukodystrophy or ALD, a severe, severe neurological disorder. ALD is a rare genetic mutation that primarily affects boys. It triggers excess production of fatty acids in the bloodstream, which in turn ravages the central nervous system. There's no known treatment. Boys who got the disease lost the ability to hear, to speak, and to see, and eventually died. The physician believes Lorenzo only has two years to live. It's hard to imagine getting any worse news than they received that day. The devastated parents refuse to give up. Convinced there must be some way to combat the disease, they begin poring over medical research. The Adonis felt they were under the gun here. Their son was getting worse and worse, and they were trying desperately to find something that could help him. But soon, Lorenzo's body begins to break down. He is confined to a bed and receives nourishment through a feeding tube. Desperate to halt the deadly march of the disease, Michaela flips through an obscure European medical journal. One article catches her attention. It states that the fatty acid levels in the bloodstream can be reduced by ingesting a substance called oleic acid. Oleic acid is the main ingredient in olive oil. So the Adones give Lorenzo a highly refined olive oil through his feeding tube, and the initial results are promising. The high levels of fatty acids in the blood went down by about a half. But the fatty acid levels are not low enough to impact the disease's relentless war on Lorenzo's body. This is where Augusto had an epiphany. What if oleic acid is not the only substance that can reduce the amount of fatty acids in the bloodstream? He realized that if they found a second oil that they could add to the oleic acid, they could potentially lower the fatty acid levels to normal. Then Augusto learns of a substance that may be effective: erucic acid. The compound can be found in canola oil, which is derived from the rapeseed plant, a specimen of which is on display at the San Diego Natural History Museum. But there's a problem: in high concentrations. 
erucic acid can be deadly. It was known that erucic acid caused heart damage in laboratory rats. But the Odones have nothing to lose. They feed Lorenzo an oil mixture containing four parts erucic acid and one part oleic acid. Finally, after a few weeks, it's time to measure Lorenzo's blood levels. And what they find is remarkable. His fatty acid levels are normal. Over time, Lorenzo's symptoms gradually recede. Though it is not a cure, the homeopathic remedy halts the disease in its tracks, and soon the medical world takes notice. The Adone's oily concoction, dubbed Lorenzo's oil, is eventually prescribed to hundreds of children throughout the world. The difference that Lorenzo's oil has made is a remarkable one. Roughly two-thirds of boys at risk for ALD will not develop ALD if they take the oil early enough. Thanks to his family's incredible ingenuity, Lorenzo defies his initial prognosis and lives another 25 years before passing away in 2008 at the age of 30. And today at the San Diego Museum of Natural History, this rapeseed plant stands as a testament to two extraordinary parents whose love for their son led to a groundbreaking advance in medical science. Perched in the lush hills of Marin County, the city of San Rafael, California, was founded in 1817 by Spanish missionaries. And not far from the center of town, housed in a historic mansion, is the Marin History Museum. Miwok Indian craftware, a 19th century grand piano, and a fully recreated Victorian-era parlor are just a few of the items that celebrate this region's past. But one object here bears the gruesome signs of a dark and troubling event. This artifact is two foot long, frayed, and it has blood stains on it. According to author Chris Entz, this tattered noose sealed the dismal fate of a notorious prisoner. This particular item ensnared one of the most diabolical and inventive criminals in California history. Who was this ruthless villain? And how did his heinous deeds rattle the state of California to its core? August 5th, 1935, La Cañada, California. Viola and James Pemberton are enjoying a fun-filled evening on the town with their close friend, Robert James. As the night draws to a close, James invites the couple home to meet his new bride, Mary. They've been married three weeks, incredibly happy. But when they enter Robert and Mary's abode, something's amiss. They can't find Mary anywhere in the home. The trio scours the property. Then, in the backyard, they make a gruesome discovery. They come across Mary, and she's face down in the fishpond, dead. Robert cradles his wife's lifeless body and explains to his friends that Mary had recently been suffering from fainting spells. He surmises that she must have fallen into the pond and drowned. Police arrive to investigate this shocking tragedy. And after examining Mary's body, the coroner corroborates Robert's theory. They just decide that it was an unfortunate accident. But a few weeks later, everything changes. Police receive a phone call that convinces them that there's more to Mary's death than meets the eye. 
they discover a plot more diabolical than they could have ever imagined. A local bartender tells police that a man named Charlie Hope drunkenly admitted to being involved in the death of Mary James. The police track down Hope, and under intense questioning, he unfolds a jaw-dropping tale. The story begins eight months earlier. Down on his luck and in desperate need of cash, Hope visited his old friend and barber, Robert James. James gives the man a free haircut, but then the barber offers him an astounding quid pro quo. He suggests to Charlie that there is a way to make some money if he would help him kill his wife. Robert explains that he has a $5,000 insurance policy on his wife, a sum he'll gladly share with Hope if he'll help him carry out his plot. James wants to make it look like an accident, and he is uh, inspired by the story of Cleopatra's death. According to legend, the Egyptian queen Cleopatra committed suicide by exposing herself to the bite of a venomous snake. Robert explains that the best part of the plan is that a snake bite can never be traced back to them. And with this assurance, Hope agrees to help. He acquires a pair of rattlesnakes from an exotic animal keeper. And on the night of August 4th, he brings them to the James house. There, he discovers that Robert has already put the plan in motion. James taped up her mouth and tied her hands. Then, Hope hands the venomous package to his co-conspirator. James puts the box of rattlesnakes on the floor and puts his wife's foot into the box with the rattlesnakes. In a matter of seconds, the snakes strike. And Robert waits for the venom to take its toll. But she doesn't die. Then the plan starts to unravel. Robert panics and drags his wife to the bathroom where he promptly drowns her in the bathtub. Then he stages Mary's lifeless body along the edge of his backyard fish pond to make her death look like an accident. As Hope finishes his account, investigators find it almost too sensational to believe. The police are very suspicious. They decide that they're going to exhume the body to see if any of this bears out. And when they examine the body, they discover a previously overlooked detail, a snake bite on Mary's toe. Robert James is arrested, and in the summer of 1936, the barber is found guilty of murder and sentenced to death. His co-conspirator, Charlie Hope, is given a life sentence. And in May 1942, the rapacious James makes criminal justice history. Robert James had the dubious honor of being the last man hanged in the state of California. And today, this threadbare noose, the same one used in that fateful execution, stands at the Marin History Museum as a grisly reminder of a callous killer and his venomous plot. Originally named Millionaire's Row for the mansions that line the street, Today, Washington, D.C.'s Embassy Row is home to over 50 missions from around the globe. But a few miles away is an institution dedicated to the darker side of diplomacy, the International Spy Museum. Here, artifacts such as an umbrella that fires poisonous pellets and a lipstick pistol 
tell stories related to this clandestine profession. But amidst these lethal devices lies a seemingly benign artifact. It's about five inches high, about six inches across. It has a woman's photograph on the lower left-hand side, and it has some descriptive information about her. According to museum education director Amanda Olke, this identification card was used by a cunning spy to avert detection. This card was the difference between life and death. Who is the woman pictured on this card? And how did she use it in a high-stakes tale of espionage and escape? 1942, Lyon, France. The French government has surrendered the majority of its country to Germany in exchange for sovereignty over the South. But there are those who refuse to cede any ground. The French resistance was fighting against the Nazis. These were true French people who were disgusted with what had happened to their country. In an effort to aid the fight against the Germans, international spies have flooded the country. Among them is a 36-year-old American working for the British government. Her name is Virginia Hall. Hall poses as a foreign correspondent for an American paper. And she carries with her this journalist's ID card, today on display at the International Spy Museum. To be able to flash a card, oh, you're a journalist, well, that answers a lot. It's a very good cover. But perhaps the greatest tool of Hall's trade is the way she walks. She had accidentally shot her own foot and it was so badly wounded that her leg was amputated and she had a wooden leg. Hall's prosthesis causes her to walk with a pronounced limp. And to the enemy, a woman with a physical disability poses no threat at all. If Virginia were talking to a German officer in a cafe, perhaps he might slip and tell her a little too much information. On August 25th, Hall is visited by a member of the French Resistance, a Catholic clergyman named Abbe Aquan. Aquan was known for preaching anti-Nazi sermons, and he wanted to see if he could work with her network. But as the conversation unfolds, something gives Hall pause. Aquan speaks French with a German accent, and he asks a lot of questions. Hall really was concerned that perhaps he was a spy. Hall refuses Aquan's overtures. Days later, she receives troubling news through an informant. The Gestapo is looking to question a North American woman in Lyon. She quickly determines that Aquan must have outed her to the Nazis. If Virginia were caught, everything she knew would be extracted from her and then she would very likely be executed. But before she can react, the geopolitical landscape in Lyon quickly shifts. On November 7th, a confidant informs her the Germans plan to invade southern France and wipe out the resistance once and for all. She was in incredible danger. She had to get out. But the Nazis have cut off every official border crossing, except one very treacherous route the Pyrenees Mountains. The Pyrenees are incredibly steep, covered with drifts of snow up to two feet tall. Now imagine if one of your legs is wooden. 
But with no other options, Hall makes her way by train to the southeastern corner of France. There, under cover of darkness, she begins her ascent. Hall had to literally climb with her good leg and use her wooden leg as a snowplow. Her muscles are cramping, her amputated leg is blistered. Things are miserable. After two grueling nights, the weary Hall finally arrives safely in Spain. She returns to London, but her desire to help the French resistance never wavers. Virginia Hall was very devoted to France. There's so much left to be done. But going back now is fraught with risk. Unaware she had escaped, the Gestapo plastered posters with Hall's face on them all over the country. And they describe one of her most identifiable characteristics. It featured the line, the lady who limps, the most dangerous of all Allied spies. We must find her and destroy her. But the determined Hall isn't about to let that stop her. She soon crafts a new cover, dyeing her hair, wearing clothes that conceal her youthful appearance, and embracing her signature limp. Virginia goes back to France undercover as an old French peasant woman. Hall's clever ruse works, and in conjunction with the resistance, she gathers intelligence that helps lay the groundwork for the D-Day invasion of June 6, 1944. Following the war, Hall returns to America, where she becomes one of the first women to join the newly formed Central Intelligence Agency. And today, this identification card at the International Spy Museum represents the tenacity and determination the so-called limping lady used in an effort to end a war. The city of Fairfax, Virginia, is perhaps best known for its iconic courthouse, where the first Confederate officer was shot and killed during the Civil War. And just a few miles away is the National Firearms Museum. Here, an air rifle used during the Lewis and Clark expedition, a shotgun that belonged to Annie Oakley, and a pre-Revolutionary War cannon speak to the role of weapons in American history. But one item in this collection played a part in a harrowing tale of international origins. It is nearly 23 pounds. It throws a quarter pound lead ball with enough power to take down an elephant. According to museum director Jim Supika, this massive rifle was carried by a legendary explorer on a perilous mission to the ends of the earth. It's an unbelievable tale through a mysterious region that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Who wielded this weapon? And what arduous quest pushed him to the brink? Madrid, Spain, 1869. Henry Morton Stanley is an ambitious 28-year-old newspaper reporter whose insatiable thirst for adventure has taken him all over the world. Scrappy and impetuous, he fell into his niche as a journalist, working primarily for the New York Herald. So when he receives a telegram from his editor in New York asking him to take on a risky assignment, he jumps at the chance. The mission? To track down the missing British explorer Dr. David Livingston. The explorers of that era were rock stars. Livingston was one of the most famous Englishmen on the planet during his heyday. Four years earlier, Livingston embarked on an expedition into Central Africa to find the headwaters of the Nile River. 
This was the holy grail of exploration. Expedition after expedition had disappeared into Africa looking for the source of the Nile. They basically went in there and didn't come out. And Dr. Livingston proved no exception. Despite the dangers, Henry Stanley fouls to find the missing explorer, dead or alive. He was willing to tackle this daunting assignment, seeing it as his greatest challenge yet. In March 1871, Henry Stanley and his crew set out from Zanzibar on the east coast of Africa. He carries this massive elephant gun, now on display at the National Firearms Museum. Soon, Stanley hears whispers of a white man who has been seen in the tiny trading village of Ujiji, some 750 miles inland. The only person it could possibly be is Dr. Livingston. So Stanley and his team set out on an unprecedented journey across an intimidating landscape. Stanley was having nightmares. He was fearful. He was doubting himself. One by one, his crew members fall victim to deadly diseases like elephantiasis and smallpox. Then, on a sweltering afternoon, Stanley himself is struck down by a terrifying illness. He begins hallucinating, laughing and crying hysterically. He is in the grip of cerebral malaria, which is nearly always fatal. After weeks racked by fever and delirium, Stanley slowly begins to recuperate. Against all odds, Stanley recovers and they start off again in search of Dr. Livingston. The journalist and his crew cover 250 miles over the course of several months. And finally, on November 10th, they spot their destination before them. They look down on the village of Ujiji, and he was hoping Dr. Livingston was down in that village. As they enter the small settlement, Stanley spies a frail-looking white man sitting in the mud. The guy is old, he's got white hair, he's got a bushy beard. A hopeful Stanley approaches the man. He comes up, extends his hand, and simply says, Dr. Livingston, I presume. The old man quietly responds, yes. Stanley is elated. They sit and they talk. Livingston explains that his expedition to find the Nile's source had gone off the rails years earlier when he became sick and was abandoned by most of his crew. Livingston found himself alone in the dead center of Africa. With his back against the wall, he relied upon a band of slave traders for food and shelter. Now, having found the legendary explorer, Stanley dispatches a courier with news of his historic discovery. Word comes out May 2nd, 1872, in the New York Herald, under the headline, Livingston Safe. After the two swap adventure stories, Stanley mentions his plan for their triumphant return to civilization. But the determined old man shakes his head. Livingston, this physical wreck, says, no, I still want to find the source of the Nile. Stanley reluctantly leaves his new friend to follow his quixotic quest alone. Livingston never found the source of the Nile. He stays in Africa, only to die a year later of illness. Years later, Stanley sets out to finish what Dr. Livingston began, 
1875, he finds what he believes is the source of the Nile at Rapon Falls on the shores of Lake Victoria. Today, this rifle at the National Firearms Museum stands as a token of the friendship of two men who met only briefly, but whose names are linked forever. From a venomous plot to an unexpected spy, a heroic afterlife to a dazzling heist. I'm Don Wildman, and these are the Mysteries at the Museum. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.